Welcome to the very first episode of the Science of Feeding the World podcast. This week, we're talking to Cassie Sims about how insects smell. Uh, We would just like to give you a small disclaimer before we start the podcast. We may have forgotten to explain to you what an aphid is. Aphids are small insects with sucking mouth parts and they are major crop pests. Hey Gary, my aphid has no nose. How does it smell? Awful. Yeah. The joke, I mean, not the the punchline. You are listening to a podcast. What is that podcast? It's the science of feeding the world. So hello, welcome to this episode of the science of feeding the world. This episode, how do insects smell? I'm Gary Froon. I'm Alex Dye. I'm Hannah McGrath. And today we're joined by logic wizard slash chemist Cassie Sims. Hello. So Cassie, how do insects smell? Like bananas? (laughs) Whenever I tell people that's kind of what I study, they're like, do you mean what insects smell like or how do they smell things? (laughs) And I mean, how do they smell things? Um, See what, like a general overview of what? Yeah, use the kind of like common words. Assume that I'm a biologist with no understanding of chemistry. Or insects. Or biology. (laughs) Shade. Uh, uh, Yeah. No. So, um, well, you know how human beings smell. Uh, We all have noses. I can't really smell very much at the moment because I have a cold. Um, But we use our noses and that's a very important part of our sensory system. Um, But in insects, they don't have noses. I'm sure Alex can support me on this one. Uh, and they mm-hmm. actually, uh, I'm looking true. at him, but he looks unsure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they actually have uh, antennae instead. So insects use their antennae to smell things. Um, we have something called odorant receptors inside our nose. So this is a, odorant receptors. Yes. So odorant, as in like a smell, an odor. Mm-hmm. And these receptors basically bind with the odorants and they send a signal to our brain saying, hey, here's a smell. Uh, insects have a similar thing, but. They also have other proteins involved and that's kind of my PhD is unraveling kind of what's going on inside their antennae because I think it's a little bit more complicated than what happens inside our noses. Not to dismiss anyone who works on that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So a molecule comes flying through the air somewhere and attaches Mm -hmm. to one of these odorant receptors in the insect's antennae? Um, (laughs) Some people might say yes. It's it's hard because I think I work on an area which is a bit like there's a few different theories of what's going on. So I'd hate to sit here and say, this is what happens because this is what my PhD shows when it's quite a big, big field. So it's contra- is, there a, is there drama? Is there- there's a bit of drama. <laughs> <laughs> Let's briefly summarise that. Are there two camps, three camps? Oh, like, what a few, the, what are yeah, yeah, a few. Can we so, name anyone? Can we dox anyone? <laughs> I, I don't, I don't want to bring people's names into Subtweet this, man. Them. I've got to consider my future career. Like, <laughs> but if, I might switch camps at some point but, if there's a good paid job. I don't know. <laughs> but what are the kind of camps then? So, yeah, so in, in humans, we know there's odor receptor thing. That, that's pretty, pretty well established. Um, but the difference is, with insects, their antenna is filled with basically water. And a lot of the stuff that we know insects can smell, um, the things that plants give off, the pheromones, which are the, you know, the chemicals that insects use to communicate between each other, they don't dissolve in water. 
Um, so it seems kind of counterintuitive that it would just easily go into their antenna and, and meet these odor receptors. So there's another type of protein, which um, is the odorant binding protein, um, or OBP, as I only ever call <laughs> them. Uh, and that's kind of what my PhD focuses on. And people think that maybe these proteins are, are like transporters. So they basically like pick up the smells and they transport them to the receptor. Um, and other people think that they are kind of almost doing some kind of receptor sort of function in themselves so they can tell the difference between things and then that sort of helps the insect tell the difference between things um so there are probably like three or four camps <laughs> there's kind of the it's just just odor receptors the obps are literally nothing they don't matter they're just artifacts of evolution i don't know there's some kind mm -hmm. of that there's no purpose some people think that they are transporters uh some people think that they're involved in in the function there's probably other theories that there's a few a few different ones out there but so to, I've, i'm taking notes because i'm taking it very seriously yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course you are yeah so we've got our antenna <laughs> yeah and it's filled with water basically yeah and then our chemical pheromones come and touch the antenna so you've got little holes in the antenna okay yeah so on the antenna there's these little like hair-like structures they're called sensilla anyone cares um so it's, it's kind of like you know inside your lungs whatever you have like cilia mm -hmm. it's the same thing like to increase the surface uh -huh. area and in those they have little holes and that's where in theory the odorants go in so the the <laughs> chemical pheromone or the the smell would, would yeah, go in the yeah. hole and then the debate is about what these odorant binding proteins do yeah and that's kind of my phd is is looking at what they do so okay. adding to, adding to that that plethora of knowledge. <laughs> so do you kind of sit outside these different camps then? You're I, I would say so, yeah. Slightly more objective. I'm, I'm Switzerland of, of the insectal faction world. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I went to a conference a couple of weeks ago and I, I got a lot of questions on, do they really have a function? You know, that kind of sassy yeah. tone that people use. But, you know, I, I gave my points for all the arguments and I said, look, I, I, I'm not here to say what I think is right or wrong. I'm here to add to the to the scientific literature and see what what evidence I think is presented and what I think that that is That's quite strange. So, so how long have we even known that these odorant binding proteins exist? I assume um, they got their name because they do actually bind with, with odorants they do, and we yeah. know that they do that. Yeah, and in my PhD, I've shown this evidence of that as well. Okay. Um, but yeah, they, they've been around since maybe like the 80s, 90s. Um, they were discovered by a guy called Paolo Pelosi, uh, who's still alive. What so. a great name. <laughs> Paolo. Yeah, Paolo Pelosi. He actually wrote a, a pop side book on, on smells. I wasn't uh, sure if you were going to say pop music there. No, he, he actually wrote <laughs> pop music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he, he discovered them and yeah. They're not just in insects as well. They're, they're found in sort of mammal, in like, um, you know, sort of some mammals are a bit more mucusy in the nose, like dogs and cows. And in you currently? Yeah, and, and also myself. I wish I, yeah. I'm not sure if they've been, I think they haven't been found in humans, but probably quite useful today. <laughs> but yeah, so some, some of the more mucusy nosed animals also have these proteins in their nose, which makes sense if they, you know, because the mucus is basically water as well. So, So why do they need to smell? Yeah, well, why do we need to smell? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I've never thought uh, about it. Panic. You've, you've elicited the panic response in me. Yeah, I've, I've, I've answered an your interview. question with a question. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, I mean, for us, we use our smell 
we do use a smell for a sense of communication, um, but it's a lot more mild, I would say, than what mm-hmm. other animals use. Oh, yeah. But insects generally use sense of smell as their main form of communication. There are insects that use uh, like sound, uh, things like dragonflies only seem to use vision, but most mm-hmm. insects only use their sense of smell um, or mainly use their sense of smell. And the difference between insects and humans, <laughs> one of many, is how smart, smart, I'm doing air quotations, so I just realised this is recorded, but uh, <laughs> smart they are uh, in that they don't really, a lot of them don't necessarily learn or have much memory. They don't really make conscious choice. I mean, that's probably a big argument, but arguably they don't make conscious choice. So it's kind of more like a reflex, their behaviour, rather than, hmm, that smells nice, I'm going to go over there. It's just like, go over there. So mm-hmm. the smell is more important for that kind of behavior because if they want to find a mate, they're not going to be like, hmm, which mate do I fancy? <laughs> Who's the more attractive? <laughs> Who smells the best? Which is what we might do. They'll just be like, there is a female over there and I'm going to go. And- so insects <clears throat> know who to mate with. I really wanted to be ruder then. Insects <laughs> know who to mate with based on smell. In a lot of cases, yeah. Um, when you say know who to mate with, that's basically just someone of the opposite sex of the same species. That's that's <laughs> pretty much the defining, you know, often virgins in like things like flies as well. But it's it's generally not more specific than that. You're looking at me like you've got some horrible rude joke. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, I didn't. <laughs> I but, promise, mum. Yeah, but it's it's generally like uh yeah, generally like same species. So you can even have um so sex pheromones are what's used. We're talking about sex a lot, so it may as well. Uh, sex pheromones are what's used for finding sexual partners. And even in sort of like aphids, for example, different species of aphids use the same sex pheromone, but they use it in different ratios and different concentrations. And that's, they can still tell the difference between those two ratios and two concentrations. So that's a whole, that's a whole other Pandora's box to open. <laughs> but yeah, so it's really important. When you say different ratios and different concentrations, what's that for? Um, As in to distinguish between more genetically fit partners? Was it, or? Was it species? Different species, oh, yeah. Okay. So um, most, we talk about sex pheromone, it sounds like it's one chemical. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you say, you know, you talk about it. So pheromone's communication chemical between insects of, of, or any animal of the same species. We, sell, we talk about it, it sounds like it means one chemical, but it often means more than one chemical. So we would say the sex pheromone is consisted of a few different chemicals. And often the ratio of those chemicals is important. So in aphids, the sex pheromone consists of two chemicals. The ratio is one to one with the P aphid, but it's like 27 to three with like the black bean aphid, something like that. So it's, it's completely dependent and that's really important for finding. Yeah. So to go back to it, so these sex pheromones are the things that would go through the pores in the yeah. antenna we were talking about earlier. Yeah. And again, it opens up a whole other box of words when you start talking about ratios and combinations. Um, that's like a whole thing in itself. Um, so in humans, we understand how this works because um, it's it's a neuro, neuro, neurological thing. I can't say mm-hmm. the word, but it's the way the neurons work and the way the neurons fire and the way our brain processes that information. That's how we can interpret mixtures and things and ratios. Mm-hmm. But in insects, there's still it's still a misunderstood. I'd say there's again different theories, 
Uh, I saw two people argue at the conference about it. <laughs> it was quite <laughs> funny, actually. <laughs> I was like, oh, can't we all just be friends? But apparently that's not how science works all the time. <laughs> yeah so that's the the messages that come from other aphids other insects what about the, the messages yeah. that are coming in from plants and things then yeah so it's kind of the same idea but we just have a different word for it so instead of saying pheromones we use the word allelochemistry or allelochemicals so what kind of chemicals are the plants producing what are they communicating to the aphids yeah so obviously plants sometimes produce uh compounds that attract insects uh, and sometimes that repel insects and a lot of that is you know some of it could be arguably by evolution uh you don't want an aphid on wheat for example because then aphid will eat the wheat and that's bad and the wheat doesn't want to be eaten you know uh and sometimes you want to attract insects like you want bees on your flowers to pollinate the flower wants bees to come and pollinate it so there's a, like a huge range an absolutely massive endless range of chemicals that involve these interactions some have different behavioral output depending on what insect we're talking about or what scenario it's in. Um, I mean, at Rufflestead, we do a lot of work on understanding these interactions and interpreting what chemicals are involved. And mm. it's not just, I mean, we're talking about insects a lot, but it's not just insects. You get like below ground interactions too between fungus and plants. Um, yeah, and plants and plants. You can get it so that if one plant is attacked, it produces a chemical and the plant next to it will start producing defensive repellent chemicals because it's like, ah, my friend just got attacked, so I don't want to be attacked, so I'm going to repel oh, away wow. the insect. Yeah, so, so. It, it can sort of bump up its friend's defences kind of yeah. thing. Say, help, I'm, yeah. I'm being got. Please, you stop. Yeah. Stop sending them away. Yeah, so it's, it's becomes a very complicated, you know, world to interpret. So next question. Okay. Why does this matter from a food production point of view then? You were kind of talking a little bit about wheat, which I know is yeah. important. Yeah, this is a very good question that I get asked a lot at Rothamsted. Uh, I go to chemistry conferences and they're like, what techniques did you use? And then you go to like agricultural ones. They're like, why is this important? Ah, mm -hmm. <laughs> the big questions. Um, it, it's important for a few reasons. I mean, obviously, we yeah, like I said, we mentioned wheat and we mentioned aphids a lot, which is kind of the main focus species of my PhD. Um, Aphids are obviously a pest on wheat and, well, not just wheat, a lot of crops <laughs> worldwide. Yeah, carrots. Hannah knows a lot about Mexicans. that. Yeah. <laughs> et cetera. Et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> we could literally we could list every crop, I swear. Uh, different types of aphids, but worldwide they're a problem. Um, and we also, we want to attract pollinators and things as well. So there are reasons why. Hang on. So we're to... talking about aphids. Yeah. Have we introduced them? Which is that? Is this a delayed? The oh aphid. My God. Yeah. <laughs> delayed onset. I forget that everyone says to me, "What's an aphid?" That's a very good point. Actually. I know. Yeah, I yeah my mum has no idea what an aphid is, so probably yeah. If only there was an entomologist in the room who could give us a brief description. I know you like flies, but show it to the room. Okay, so aphids are small. Uh, how, how do I describe this very basically without Heavy turning becomes. into a massive nerd? Yeah. Uh, they're small green insects. Not not always green. All right, I'm going to start again. Quite often, not green. <laughs> okay, they are small, often, but not always green insects that are prominently pests because they uh, have sucking mouth parts that they can sort of stab into the plant yeah. to get into the uh, phloem or xylem, and um, which are the uh, kind of like the veins of the plant they use to transport their various sugars and things around. Um, 
and they're often a really big pest because they can produce pathogenetically, which means they essentially clone themselves. They're asexual reproduction. Exactly. So all you kind of need is one to land on that to get onto the plant, and then they will begin to reproduce, and <laughs> they can really colonize very, very quickly and get out of hand. And many are uh, virus vectors, yeah. so we'll bring various diseases to plants. Sorry, Hannah. That's pretty much the bad part, the viruses. Yeah, yeah. I was the worst say, part. Yeah. The carrots, it's the viruses. But so when an aphid is born, it's born with its... Grandparents. Parents. Yes, they're, they're kind of like, like those... Granddaughter. Um, granddaughter, Sorry. The babushka kind of dolls. Yeah. We open it and there's another one inside and then another one and the smaller ones. So it ones. explains why they're so bad. So sorry for interrupting you. No, so you were okay. talking about... So your project focuses on... Aphid, yeah, olfaction, yes. That's so aphid smelling, yes, and that's where it comes into the food security and affecting the science of feeding the world. Then, yeah. So currently, we use uh, our knowledge of not just aphid but insect olfaction generally, whatever pest we're talking about, to to help with pest control. So uh, something we do at Rufflestead is called integrated pest management, and this mm. is basically. All it means is using different strategies in conjunction with each other to kind of limit the overuse of one strategy. So we talk a lot about overuse of pesticides. It's a big issue and we could talk of a whole podcast on that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, but it's about basically using everything in moderation. And one of the strategies that you can use is either traps or lures. So you can basically get an aphid or another insect to come to a trap you could also use repellents to repel aphids away and we can even plant a trap a trap here is not like a box in the ground with a trap door on it that they fall through right we're talking about no like a water trap or like a sticky (laughs) trap there's loads of different types of insect traps but it uses insect semi-chemistry or insect olfaction the sense of smell whatever you want to call it um, you need to understand what chemicals are active and what chemicals are repellent and attractive to do that kind of thing. Uh, by understanding how they smell things, we can more easily find out what they can smell. So it's kind of a, a top-down approach, you know, working mm. in a different direction. You mentioned making chemicals, and that's something I wanted to ask about. It's like, which <laughs> yeah. there, which is like you, you walk into a lab one morning, and yeah. today you're like, my task today is to make this compound, this compound yeah. that is a, what like an aphid pheromone or a plant volatile do you synthesize yeah. these synthetically in the lab yeah it's sort of walter white breaking bad you know we've all seen that right i mean I, yeah. i'm not making meth i want to put that out there <laughs> but uh it's that kind of you know all the all the glassware and things spinning around and and things whirling it's the, around it's the stereotypical someone thinks of a scientist and yeah it's like flasks full of colorful things yeah i mean with the only thing with synthetic chemistry is it's never a fun color it's always what we call chemistry yellow which is this brownie yellow color that everything in chemistry is (laughs) it's it's kind of i'm trying to find something in the room that's that color but it's probably not helpful to anyone (laughs) on a podcast no, but it's like that oil color, you know, that kind of oil, like olive oil. Yeah, a bit darker, but it's. I mean, everything is that color. Um, oh wow! But you did make a Christmas tree. I did. <laughs> Tell us about the Christmas tree. Well, so the Chris, this is this is where I have to go into the kind of heinous area of inorganic chemistry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so all the fun colors come from inorganic chemistry. They're from metals and compounds that contain metals generally. So I made the Christmas tree, which is on I think it's on Ruffelstead Instagram. Chemistry. 
yeah, the chemistry. I did call it appropriately that. Well done. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it had it had clamps down built up of different round bottom flasks because they kind of look like baubles hanging off it of different coloured compounds, uh, but they were all metal compounds. So and did you have to fill out a form for that? I did have to do a cost safety form. <laughs> that was the condition of it being in the lab was that I made an appropriate cost form and <laughs> put it next to the tree, uh, but it did have a snowman on top. So what do you actually do in the day? What, what does it look like when you come into work and what do you do like. what's your lab day yeah i do quite a lot of different things so it does vary a lot um so i study proteins mainly and to study proteins you have to make proteins so mm-hmm. i make proteins by growing bacteria that produces proteins and i extract the proteins out of them i then test these proteins with uh, the chemicals that i synthesized so i make them in the lab like so you make chemicals Potions. in the lab yeah. and then you test them against the against the proteins. Pro- the odor binding proteins. Yes. And this testing is loads of different uh loads of different techniques. Uh fancy analytical chemistry techniques like uh nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy or NMR, which is basically like an MRI but for chemicals. Uh I use something called fluorescence, which is like a cool photo chemistry technique i really want to add like ooh, like after everything you ooh, said <laughs> no ooh, chemistry <laughs> no i was thinking like you know in the audience and the crowd goes like ooh. Ooh. <laughs> so yeah. nmr fluorescence yeah uh i do i use so many different techniques i don't think i could sit and list and display them all <laughs> but uh i also do some modeling stuff on the computer so i basically computer simulate the interactions as well which is quite fun uh because it can help guide your experimental work and then you don't have to waste stuff uh, <laughs> so are the chemicals you work on expensive then uh so the ones i have to make it's quite expensive yeah well it's like quite a lot of steps and the starting material itself is quite expensive so yeah have you ever like accidentally thrown it down the sink yeah or something? 100 times <laughs> all the time <laughs> i i have like here's a vial of a thousand pounds worth of chemical oops oh this sort of thing happens to me every day no, we've all sad. we've all been there yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean yeah, yeah. <laughs> i actually like have provisions in my protocols which are like cassie's clumsy mistake provisions where i'm like make sure you put this in this flask and label it this otherwise you will probably throw it in the bin by accident at some later point when you forget yeah yeah <laughs> i want to move the hot flask out of the way because i thought i'd flail and, and knock it over because i'm quite flaily uh so i put it on a windowsill but the windowsill turned out to be plastic so it like burnt through the windowsill <laughs> and i was like oh even when i'm trying not to be clumsy i'm clumsy <laughs> <laughs> so unfair yeah yeah scientists are people too yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, are, those things are expensive though because I when i was doing my masters i did um a lot of pcr which is basically um Oh, how do you how do you easily explain it? PCR. The I like the way chain reaction. Alex yeah, yeah. is looking at me to explain this. PCR. No, no You're in a room this. full of not molecular yeah, yeah. biologists. <laughs> Essentially, it's a way of collecting a small amount of DNA, which are the building blocks of life, <laughs> and amplifying them up. So, or increasing the amount you have using this. Uh, yeah, because it's two. hard to do something yeah. with one tiny piece yeah, of DNA. Exactly. You want lots and lots and lots of it, of that same piece. Exactly. Yeah. So you Very can common at, technique. Yeah. Mm. And so I, I, I had to do that. And um, they cost quite a bit, some of the materials I was using for the PCR. And then I found out the reason why it was costing so much was because I was using something like 30 times more than I should in each sample. And then my, my people <laughs> I was working with got incredibly frustrated with me. <laughs> so... 
how did you get interested in how insects smell? <laughs> yeah, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I cannot throw shade at <laughs> Carrot lady. Uh, <laughs> I think, well, Sarah, when I, went to, when I was at university, I did chemistry and biology, joint honours, dual honours, whatever you want to call it, uh, which is a bit unusual in the UK, I think, to do two subjects at degree level. But here I am. Uh, <laughs> and sort of between second and third year, uh, decided to do a research project because I really wanted to be a scientist, but I also thought I should probably find out if I actually like doing science before I, you know, actually research science. So very I did a, wise. Yeah, mm -hmm. I went to do a research project, but because I'm very clearly indecisive, I mean, I picked to do a degree with two subjects, so I'm very indecisive. <laughs> I found it hard to even narrow it down to that. Um, I then decided to do a project that was something that kind of combined my favorite parts of both so i really loved organic chemistry which is like the study of organic molecules basically molecules containing carbon i really really loved that and i loved doing synthesis and i loved making chemicals and i was like la, 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 i love this uh, and i also really loved insect ecology <laughs> so uh, fortunately wow. so that's quite broad that's isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah fortunately there's a crossover <laughs> uh and fortunately there was someone at my university working on it i think i probably wouldn't have known about it if there was and i would ended up doing something else so I did a research project in that and yeah so you were at university yeah and you were doing a dual honours which I didn't realize until I think it was two days ago when I asked you to send me that nature article you were profiled in again and it said in there and that was the first time I realized it mm. um but so science and nature are like the two big journals right yeah like, one's, one's British and one's American is yeah that right? yeah and nature's British. Alex if I said to you you could get published in nature how would you celebrate uh, I would ask you how many of my family members you needed me to sell in order to buy that. <laughs> I would be pretty happy. I'd be quite happy. I think that would that would be a not quite life defining, but potentially it's a, big, it's a rare moment. It's a scientist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sat at this table is Cassie, <laughs> who has been profiled in Nature. It's not quite publishing a science, but it's a different. <laughs> <laughs> um, so why were you profiled in Nature? Yeah, so <laughs> it was kind of a crazy thing that I didn't think would happen, but it did. Um, so I was I, I was on Twitter, uh, as many of us at this table often are, perusing the old Twitterverse. What's your, what's your hashtag? No. That's oh, the hashtag. Handle. Handle. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Granddad. <laughs> what's your handle, Cassie? We can edit uh, that out. At <laughs> Sims Cassie. S-I-M-S. Oh, yeah, only one M in that. Um, yeah, so I was, I was on Twitter and... Um, I saw somebody post say, hey, is there anyone out there who is, is an academic now or a scientist, you know, PhD level roughly, whose parents didn't go to university or grew up in a rural area? And I was like, ha, that's me. And I always sort of scroll past these things. But I think that week I'd maybe been a bit on a bit of a rant about the kind of issues associated with that. And I thought, oh, I can't be that person who goes on a rant about this stuff and actually doesn't come forward and do something about so it. So let's just take a... Tangential tang detour. Okay. So what you were talking about having a rant about that stuff. Yeah. What do you mean by that stuff? Well, I think I, I can't remember who I was talking to, but I was trying to explain that when you come from a background where your parents are scientists or I don't have even gone to university or haven't even finished school or a rural background where there's no science places or science people around, explaining to your family, your friends back home, what you did or what you do is a horrendous experience <laughs> and furthermore coming into this science and things there's a lot of people when I started had an idea of what doing a PhD was 
when I, you know, I had no idea. What I was absolutely no clue what was going on. I had no clue what a scientific career looked like. I obviously do now. I've had a lot of people educate me. I've had a few years to figure this stuff out. And you educated yourself. That I've educated myself. Yeah. But at first it was like horrifying. And then you have people come in who are like, oh yeah, da, 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 PhD, postdoc. It's so obvious. And you're like, ah, it's not obvious. Yeah. And I remember those days. Yeah. It's, it's quite tough. So I'm just kind of on a bit of a, a moment about that. And when I saw this tweet, uh, so I, I sort of said, Hey, I'm one of those people and it kind of all spiraled out of control from there. <laughs> How did it spiral? So the woman who, who did the tweet is actually a journalist from nature. <laughs> that would help to which get I, in nature. <laughs> which I should have probably known. Uh, she's been doing a series of, or had been doing, I don't know if she's finished now, a series of articles talking about different minorities uh, or sort of groups of people who it's harder to get into science uh, with. And she'd actually picked to do one on people who are from backgrounds that are a bit poorer, with sort of uneducated parents, which sounds like a, an insult to my parents, but you know what I mean. Uh, they didn't go to... People who haven't they necessarily had the opportunity yeah, formal edu- to yeah, formally yeah, educated. Yeah. Yeah. I they call it first generation students. Yeah, is the first, they use first gen- People who are the first within yeah. their family to go to university. Yeah, and also people from rural areas, which I think is also a, another thing that's completely underrepresented because if you grow up, in Harperton, for example, where we are, of course you know about scientists. Because, because you've just popped to the new, you've popped yeah. to the National History Museum at the weekend or something. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, you your mum's friend is a person who works at Rothamsted and is a scientist. So it's just normal. It's, you know, like you said, you can just pop into London and go to the museums. You can do all of that stuff. I mean, we went on like two school trips that I can think of that were like science related. One was to the deep at Hull, which is a very large aquarium that's all on like different floors, but it's just one big tank. It's, it's very really cool. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. cool place. And the other one, I think we went to a science museum in Newcastle, but like that's still a couple of hours away from us. So mm. yeah, a lot. it wasn't a thing. It just wasn't a thing where I grew up like science. So even though I loved science in school, I didn't know that that was a job that was open to everyone just to go and want to do, you know? Then the journalist from Nature, yeah. you did an interview with her? I did, yeah. So I did an original interview where I probably said horrible things about my parents. <laughs> no, I, it was quite funny, actually. I think I just got I just got chatting and I just, she, I mean, she was a good interview. She made me feel very comfortable. So What can we learn from her? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. She, I, she was. She asked me very like questions that just were so open ended that I think I just went really like really talked about my life and especially because I was talking about you know my family and my childhood like it's very easy to sit and talk for hours about that. So I one of my other questions was to ask you like what does it feel like being a chemist surrounded by biologists? But it's kind of the same, I suppose. What's yeah. it like when you're interested in science and the people around you aren't? How does that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't talk to my parents that much about what I do. And it's it's sad because I wish I could. But at the same time, I think they feel a bit like I'm patronising them when I do. And yeah, it, it is sad. It's hard. But I think at the same time, like I'm really proud of myself for, for mm. being here and, and doing it. And like they, they are proud of me as well. It often takes someone else to tell them that what I'm doing is great <laughs> to be proud of me. But at the same time, I think my mum posted on on Facebook when I 
graduated and I tricked them into coming to my graduation ceremony by telling them it would only take 15 minutes and it was just for pictures which is a complete lie um, <laughs> uh, and they took a picture of me at graduation and I put it on Facebook and said Cassie graduated with her degree and she's going to do a PhD like you know she put it on like a like mums do they have no idea what they're saying but they've still put it on Facebook and apparently so so many people came up to my mum and dad in the streets like you know the weeks following like your daughter's going to do a phd that's amazing yeah. <laughs> she must be so smart and my parents were like oh maybe she is <laughs> <laughs> and, and they'd ring me and go someone just said it's amazing that you're doing a phd and i was like yeah probably is a bit yeah but yeah it's, it's all right mum. <laughs> so but even still i mean like today i was telling you the other day was i like i cut my hand in the lab kind of bad so cassie is sat here right now with, with bad, plasters, like plasters. On, uh, <laughs> index finger and her thumb yeah <laughs> so i cut my hand in the lab and it was a bit scary because it was on a piece of glass with dangerous chemical on and i was following full safety protocol it was just a, an accident but um I phoned my dad and I was telling them about it. My dad goes, why are you even using dangerous chemicals? (laughs) Dad. (laughs) As a chemist, that tends to be part of the occupational hazards. Yeah, it's it's basically, that is my job. And I had to explain that again. So it is, there's days like that where you're like, oh, but you know, what are you going to do? They're they're proud of me because they think I'm doing something good. So there's that. It's been the Nobel Prizes this week, yes. uh, all being awarded, uh, often making progress in various fields. And um, You've met one recently, haven't you? I did meet a Nobel Prize winner. Which Nobel Prize winner? Linda Burke. She discovered odour receptors and I met oh, her. Oh, no way. Yeah. Oh, that's incredibly specific. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, what, com- what a, a, a conference on, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on all factions. So, um, <laughs> which uh, which camp is she in about their function? So she's mammalian woman so she just stays way out of it she's a mammalian <laughs> woman yeah <laughs> radical breaking news from a cabinetry conference <laughs> well, as opposed to someone like Alex who is an insect man <laughs> I just gotta clarify I am human <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I met her yeah she's uh, one of one of the only female ones um, <laughs> she was she's one really of the only cool. female humans yeah oh this, right. is, this is news this to explains me. a lot okay. yeah. <laughs> who was the woman who won Last year's chemistry. Uh, Francis Arnold. So I think yeah. before she had won the Nobel Prize for chemistry, there yeah, had been time. Yeah. more members of Atomic Kitten. <laughs> There's um, definitely been more members of Sugar Babes. No, Sugar Babes. <laughs> sugar Babes. Yeah. There, had been, <laughs> there had been more members of Sugar Babes um, than there had been female or women no who'd won way. the... Wow. Nobel Prize so for chemistry. that's a crazy there's, thing. More people, there's more people in this room that have won women who've won the Nobel Prize for Physics wow yeah is yeah. that true that's true mm. three women have won the Nobel Prize for Physics I don't including think, Marie Curie I don't think I want to count the number of men who have won Nobel Prizes in no, Physics or uh, Chemistry are there three, more or less just this week <laughs> <laughs> I think we could probably have a few yeah. repetitions I mean, <laughs> of Sugar Babes and their tribute acts that's a valid well, point that more uh, tribute uh, acts the same number of men who have won a Nobel Prize in Physics this week have as women have ever won a Nobel Prize in Physics wow. so, these statistics keep improving <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's pretty it's pretty bad how long until you win your Nobel Prize then? I did say to my housemate last night that if I ever win a Nobel Prize, I will streak through the building naked. I don't know how long it will be until I win my Nobel Prize, but... <laughs> will you remember us on this podcast when you do? If I do. <laughs> when? When? Positive There's mental attitude. Be, well, 
considering a lot of factors into play, I think it's going to be at least, what, 60 or 70 years. I might post-hostumously be notified, like, you know, for the Nobel Prize. <laughs> notified? They can ring my, like, <laughs> graveyard bell or something. She's been ignoring our emails. Women can finally win Nobel Prizes. <laughs> the out-of-office has been on for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We rang her from all the way from Sweden. She'd pick up, so offended. When I get a call and the number doesn't come up as someone I know, I refuse to answer it. So can you imagine if the Nobel Prize people were ringing me, being like, Hannah, your peace prize is on the way. And I'm just like, <laughs> peace decline. <laughs> on the way. I love that. <laughs> Royal Mail have got it. It's been dispatched. <laughs> I spend more Special time delivery. Googling the number. That's what happened. I'll be tracking the Nobel Prize rather than picking up the phone to speak to them. <laughs> I did I did read one of the guys this week. Uh, his wife picked up the phone and he was like, oh, I'm busy. Can you, you know, figure out, I don't know, what's it about? And she then she got to tell him that, you know, you won the Nobel Prize, by the way. And he was like, what? No, what? <laughs> she said, it was great. <laughs> We sent oh. over the thousand most common English words uh, oh, and asked you before you came uh, to, to have a think of one or two sentences that describe your sign. Oh, this is hard. Yeah. You can take, you can take your time. Yeah, take your time. I'll edit in a, uh, a jingle or something here. <laughs> if I haven't made one, this is going to sound crap now. I'm just going to be talking yeah. about it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, have you got one? That's yeah. a sentence. So we say, I work on tiny green jerk animals and their sense of smell. <laughs> that was a pretty good one. Yeah, pretty I like good. that one. Thank you for listening to The Science of Feeding the World. And thank you to Cassie. Thank you, and Cassie. thank you from me. And Thanks, Cassie. <laughs> Thanks, that was Hannah. Thanks from me. I'm Alex. And uh, join us again next week. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to the Science of Feeding the World podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe and share. And if you want to get in touch, please search for us at the Science of Feeding the World podcast on all your favourite social medias. And we'll see you next time. Social medias? <laughs> on all your favourite social platforms. Social media? <laughs> okay, boomer. Media? I don't know. <laughs>